Hey, welcome to the 140th episode of Just Shoot It, a podcast about filmmaking, screenwriting, and directing. This episode was brought to you by patrons Artemis and Alex Graboskis. Thanks, guys. I'm Matt Enlow. And I'm Oren Kaplan, and today we have Michael Pressman on the podcast. He, I think, probably has the most credits out of any of our guests we've ever had. He's up there, that's for sure. He's directed a ton of movies, a ton of TV movies, and a ton of TV. Yeah, he directed Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles 2, <laughs> Secret of the Ooze. Secret of the Ooze. He's done like we... 25 episodes of Law & Order. Uh, he's done Weeds. He's done Justified. He's done Elementary. Uh, he also directs plays. He even did a $200,000 film in the middle of all this. like That he stars in. Yeah, I mean... For a person that has like such a pedigree and so many TV credits and worked on so many things, he is still not afraid to go take an acting class and make a no-budget movie. And to me, it was really inspiring because a lot of times I think of this business as a business for the young people. Like you make your Fruitvale station at a film school and then you do you're Rocky and then you do your Black Panther. And if you're not that, then you failed. But like talking to someone like Michael Pressman, uh, it's really inspiring in terms of just like the longevity of a directing career. He has restarted his career multiple times and come through on the other side, a total and complete success. And he's still in love with the art, still passionate about filmmaking and is a total inspiration. So if you're curious about TV movies, TV or movies, Michael Pressman has a multiple nuggets that you are going to love. And also he's going to play in Venice right now playing called Finks. It's based off of some true life stories of McCarthyism and he is the son of a blacklisted director and screenwriter. So he's got a really personal take on this play as well. Finks is playing through the end of December. If you are in Los Angeles, you should go check it out and learn all of these awesome tidbits from Michael. Before we get into our conversation with Michael, I want to remind everyone we have a Patreon. It's patreon.com slash justshootapod. It's a way if you want to support us, it's helpful. You'll get a monthly newsletter. You will be able to come to our live events a little bit earlier. But most importantly, you'll help us pay our editors and just help us keep the podcast going. Check it out, patreon.com slash justshootapod. We appreciate anything uh, you want to contribute. But if you don't want to contribute, we appreciate you nonetheless. Uh, yeah, by the time this episode drops, we hope we'll have recorded uh, what I assume is going to be just a incredible, life-changing, earth-shattering live show. Best friendships will form. Certainly someone's going to find their future life partner there. Uh, tons of movie deals are going to happen, all thanks to your support. Yeah, I love it. Uh, <laughs> and with that, let's talk to Michael Pressman. You're on with Michael Pressman in New York, right? Chicago, but that's close. Oh, Chicago. Uh, yeah, well, it's cold here. We just got here. Me, <laughs> yeah, I was going to say. Took me a day to get here and start prepping on Chicago Med, which is the episode I'm doing here. So you direct a lot of Dick Wolf shows, right? You're doing uh, Chicago I, at the Med. I do, yeah. Yeah. Um, it, it, there's a, they say it's the organization that hires uh, you know, uh, Jewish males over 60. So I still seem to be in demand, but I'm, 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 I'm uh, mocking myself. I do good work. And I moved to New York from Los Angeles about 15 years ago and was immediately called to do Law & Order, which I did about eight or, eight or nine episodes. And then I've done 14 of Law & Order SVU. So you'd say I've been doing a lot of work for the Dick Wolf Company. You know, it's so funny. That's p part of the reason why Oren and I started this podcast is because directors rarely get to talk to one another. You know, uh, like there's only one of us well, on you know set what? typically. I, I, I had a, yeah, I had an interesting experience, which is when I started in television um, series, I had first started in feature films and, and did, you know, six feature films in a row in my late 20s, early 30s, in the 80s like the sequel to the Bad News Bears, Bad News Bears and Breaking Training, and Dr. Detroit, and the, the Richard Pryor movie, Some Kind of Hero, and then some other really interesting films that did uh, no box office, but were considered cult favorites, and um, and then got into television movies, and then got into series television in the 90s, where I met David Kelly, and 
wait, wait, wait. We can't skip Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. No, too. we can't. Wait. I jumped. I skipped Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles secretly ooze. I can't believe I did that. <laughs> I just Michael, jumped I saw right opening by weekend. you of my life. Okay, oh, you're you're one of I... you're one of the many. You're one of the many. <laughs> this is my That's life. Right. I live with it. It's it's a bless. It's you know it's not a curse. It's a wonderful blessing because the film was so much fun to make. It was one of the high points of my life in the sense that it was sheer uh, lunacy. Is the best way to put it. <laughs> I thought I was making a, an extended Marx Brothers film, and yet I was learning about you know, puppets and creatures, the Henson Company, and um, it was just thrilling. It was thrilling, I, uh, you know, and it came about on a total fluke, and I was literally talking to someone today about how I got that job because I was directed. It's, it's such an interesting story. I was sitting today in the office in, in Chicago here on Chicago Med, and this young woman who I just met who's a... Uh, uh, observing me said you made a movie that changed my life called joshua's heart a television movie starring this boy matthew who was amazing and i said oh my god i said so rarely do i hear about tv movies i said but what was interesting is that when i did that television movie matthew lawrence who was i think 10 had was talking nonstop about the ninja turtles and i had gotten a phone call about what i meet on the sequel because I had success with the Bad News Bears and breaking training. And I knew nothing about it. And I turned to Matthew and I said, what, what, so what do you think if I went and did the second Ninja Turtles? And he just went nuts. He said, oh my God, Mike, you've got to do it. you got to do it. you got to do it. So I went to the theater <laughs> that weekend and I watched the first one and was a little, didn't quite know what the second one was about or could do. And I met them and um, my thoughts and the thoughts of the producers were in the same line, which is to lighten the film, make it more comedic, and uh, just have a much more fun, brighter experience. And uh, it just happened overnight. And all of a sudden, I was jumping into that movie, which um, has changed many That's people's awesome. lives. The 25th uh, anniversary of the movie, there was a special screening at a festival in New York last year, and I went at midnight to this audience and they all said you know do you ever think you'd be here 25 years later i said not in a million years <laughs> i said who would have known but i'm thrilled i'm thrilled you all want to come back and re-experience it and sure but you, to be fair you must have known the turtles were a phenomenon you know like did you so, have any i apologize if this is too personal a question but did you have any kids at the time that you worked on that movie well no I, I hadn't that job, but I, I, but you see, I, listen, I have to tell you another experience to give you an idea of, of where my head was at. It was at the time when sequels were not the most popular thing in the world, and there were sequels that were coming mm -hmm. out, and they were dying. And um, I remember vividly the opening weekend of that movie, I'm driving in Los Angeles, and I'm listening to the radio, it's like 12 noon or 2 p.m., and... Uh, I hear an interview with a little boy at a movie theater, and this little boy and the interviewer saying, we're here at opening day of Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles 2, and I'm here with little Johnny, who skipped school. What do you think, Johnny? And he goes, oh, I can't wait to see it. And by the looks of things, it looks like just little old Johnny and his mom are here, so the other kids decided not to come. And I freaked out. And <laughs> I pulled over on the side of the road, and I got to a payphone, and I called the head distributor of New Line Cinema, and I got him on the phone, Mitch somebody, and I went, I just heard on the radio that the two people at the theater, what's going on? And he said, oh, we're not doing anything at that movie theater. Things are opening big all over the country. You've got nothing to worry about. Relax. And I got off the phone, and I burst into tears. And I burst into tears because I said, is the future of my career in the hands of 10-year-olds, is it what they decide? That because this business is so cruel. Well, thank God you all went. Thank God you all went. So I had no idea. You know, you, you can open a film and no one shows up. Or you can open a film and they're lying sure. around the block. And I'm telling you, it's happened to the best of them. It's happened to the best of them. You think with Steven Spielberg's failures, he knew they were coming? He didn't mm -hmm. know. They've been there. Right. You know, my God, I remember um, when I was doing, I think it was Dr. Detroit in 1941 came out. And it was like, you know. They just turned away from it.
you know, these things happen. Right. Of course. Yeah. So yeah. Dr. Detroit yeah. is a, uh, Dr. Dan Detroit Ackerman was movie, not a, so... was that, right. that Dr. Detroit was, and I don't know what your perception is, but that film was not a commercially successful movie. Um, mm-hmm. and in fact, we were not commercially successful or, um, uh, critically successful. The critics really didn't like it. And, the picture closed in several weeks, and then it developed this incredible underground following over the years. But that film set me into, to, uh, you know, directed jail for two years. Uh, you know, that's interesting to talk about. <laughs> I mean, I don't know if, if, you, I don't know okay if you're aware of that. No, I mean, no, no, I wasn't. Um, anything about it. Yeah, no. because I think that no. people reference director jail all the time, right? Um but uh, I think it's interesting to talk about, like as a person who's come through and out the other side. So Dr. Detroit doesn't do well. You know, you've, you've had a handful of movies. Things are, you know, were going great for you. And you said it took you two years before you booked your next job. Tell us about what you were doing in between that time. Well, that's very interesting. Well, first of all, I remember I had gone back to back movies. I'd done the Richard Pryor movie. Uh, some kind of hero, and then I was prepping Dr. Troy. So two and a half years of nonstop work at the age of 30 and 31, which is pretty wild. I look back and I can't believe it. Yeah. Okay, I was in a rarefied world, and I was burned out. And the opening weekend, there's a big screening of Dr. Detroit in Loyola College in Los Angeles. thousand kids from college go to, go to a screening, and it's like unbelievable screening and I get on stage with a guy named Gary Prabola who was you know showing films on the opening weekend and he looks to me before we start the interview and he says congratulations you finally got a big blockbuster and I said the film is not open well <laughs> and he went what I said no it didn't open well it's going to be pulled in a couple of weeks and he's like in shock and this whole interview was like in front of the audience he couldn't believe it what did I do went into a pretty serious depression, but I was feeling at the same time like I wanted to live my life. I took my first trip to Europe. I went to England and France. I came back. I called my agent, and that's when he sort of said to me, well, you've been gone for two months. There are no jobs. There are no offers, and, you you know, we're going to try to get stuff, but it doesn't look good. And I took a real kind of fuck you attitude. And I started writing a screenplay and I started directing theater and I had the time of my life and uh, I directed the play version of to Jillian on our 37th birthday, which is another crazy story because 10 years later I got to direct the movie of that play and I was making no money, which was fine by me. I was actually going through a divorce and my life was a total mess. And I just, uh, and I will honestly say, you know, I was uh, doing drugs because I was out of my mind. And then finally, I was down to my, seriously, down to my last $4,000. And I had a business manager who, you know, straight out of like the movie A New Lease, if you remember that famous film by Elaine May with Walter Matthau driving a car, crying, saying, I'm broke, I'm broke. And anyway, <laughs> he took me. He took me to a bank and he got me a line of credit and he said, uh, you need this 50000 to last the next three months because you haven't worked in two years. And I went, really? Oh, my God. And I called my agent and I said, get me anything. And they got me a television movie. And then they got me another television movie. And I proceeded to do three television movies a year for like five years, at which point I said, I went back to directing school. I got a chance to direct all oh, 25, 25 movies for television. <laughs> and and Michael, is this like a life? This is pre-lifetime, right? It's like ABC, yeah, is it like N- after NBC. school specials or nighttime? No, they're nighttime stuff? NBC, CBS, ABC movies. It was movies. Dramas. Yeah. Movies of the week. Saturday night at the movies, Sunday night at the movies, Wednesday night at the movies. That's what the networks had. Every network had two nights. Each network was making a hundred television movies a year. I was, I, I, if I wanted to do four or five, I could do them. I was making three a year, and I would work for three and a half months. So I'd take a break and I'd do another. And, um, and Michael, were you were, were you trying to make them 
like awesome? <laughs> like I know it's a dumb question, but like, yes, I were was. you pouring your heart and soul into each one of them? Yes, I always was. And I do that with the episodes too. And then finally what happened was after I'd say seven or eight or 10, uh, the, the, the quality rose. And all of a sudden I was doing an incredible television movie starring Angela Lansbury about uh, Flight 007 that was shot over um, Russian airspace. Um, and then I did uh, a television movie called Tequila Nation about the building of the Vietnam Memorial starring Eric Roberts. And I was starting to do the quality television movies. And then I got mm -hmm. a Hallmark Hall of Fame, which was already now into big budgets. You know, these were like four to six million dollar movies. And I was, uh, it starred Tom McCarthy, who's a dear friend who went on to direct and write Spotlight. And uh, he was an actor. He starred in the movie and it was written by Ann Tyler, who's a brilliant novelist. And this was called Saint Maybe. So all of a sudden I had this whole new career and it was never what I intended. So I was a very reluctant success in television. Mm -hmm. um, and are you making like, uh, like do you get paid residuals when these movies air? Like how, like are you yes, becoming yes. very wealthy during, like um, through this TV movie process? No. Um, you want the, you want the, the dirty details? Um, let's see. I was making, <laughs> I mean, you don't have to tell okay. us exactly, but I okay. think a lot of I, like I did a t one TV movie, uh, and a lot of our listeners I think are maybe looking at that as like a gateway into, mm -hmm. like you said, a becoming better directors, b like having a you know, what I love about TV movies is there's this like real clear deadline, right? You oh got, yeah, <laughs> this movie is going to air in three months, and it. so you can't edit it for two years, right? You can't. You've um, got three weeks, and you've got three, eighteen days to shoot it. And you've got, you know, it doesn't matter if it's a, if it's an intimate drama or it's a period piece. It's 18 days. And oh, I did, uh, you know, uh, Revenge of Al Capone, a period film. And I, you know, I, I was really having a great time. And then it started to wear on me because I started to mm -hmm. feel like um, I was um, not being not having the opportunity to make the kinds of films I made when I was in my 20s. Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden, I'm now in my late 30s. And Michael, were you still returning to theater from now and then? Or yes. was that, were you purely just cranking? I was, no, okay, so you yeah, did, did get the bounce back. I did. I did another two different plays in Los Angeles. Um, I went back to an acting class, and I started acting and, and writing. I had written several screenplays and um, wasn't wasn't able to get them made. So I was doing a lot of different things, but this was my bread and butter so that I could direct and not only make a living, I could um, pay off debt. <laughs> and you're also becoming a, a better director, I assume, uh, on every... Much better. Like you, and you look at your... I mean, it's not like you're a comedy guy or an action guy or a drama guy. You've done everything. Pretty much. I, I, I think that... that um, I love comedy. Comedy is very hard. Uh, but, you know, the irony was that um, the, now that I remember we're talking about this and it's coming to me, at the end of my TV movie run uh, was when I did the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles 2. What happened, strangely enough, was nothing really career-wise changed out of Ninja Turtles because people who thought it was a terrific, fun movie um, didn't think of me for anything else because it was mm -hmm. sort of like a, you know, they didn't know how to, they didn't know how to, Hollywood didn't know how to deal with it. Studios didn't know how to deal with it. It was, it was such a, you know, a, a uniquely different kind of thing. Sure. And it's, it's both easy under, under to estimate because it's a kid's movie, right? Right. And then also it's a sequel. So right. it's like, no matter how awesome you did, it's like, well, of course the first one did great. So the second one did great, exactly. even though. You know, it's a different movie. You elevated it. You did something different. You know, people are just kind of dismissive of it. Well, and at the yeah, time that yeah. that movie came out, was it like this? It was before like superhero movies were the biggest movies in Hollywood, right? Correct. Correct. This was an offshoot. This was New Line Cinema. They, they, it was not what it is today. It was, you know, sadly, it's ahead of its time because now to do a, 
you know, an action hero film uh, for a $100 million budget would be a very uh, cool thing to do. You know, it's pretty right. much made. Yeah, Michael Bay did the last one, right? Right. The last Ninja right. Turtles. <laughs> which, which I didn't see, yeah. so I can't judge. I don't know. <laughs> you know, so, so what happened specifically was after Ninja Turtles opened, and it was this big hit, and there was a lot of press about it, I, I think I was naive again. I think I have a naivete. I was thinking, well, something's going to happen. And it really, I had to do it. And I didn't have any, the other thing too is that the escalated post was so fast on Ninja Turtles that I finished shooting in January and it came out in March. So, whoa, yeah. Wow. So I had two editors. They're working while we're shooting. I'm looking at cuts. We just sped the whole thing up. And I, I was exhausted. And, um, I wasn't like, now I'm energized to do my next thing. And, you know, time went by. And then, interestingly enough, I got a phone call to meet David Kelly for the Picket Fences pilot. Mm, wow. And it was, it was recommended by somebody that I had worked with and through connections. And um, I met him. We got along great. And he didn't hire me. So I didn't do the pilot, and I was really disappointed. I loved the script, and I thought it was like a really special situation. And uh, so I went off and did another television movie. I got one, and I hadn't worked since four or five months, and said, okay. And while I'm shooting that TV movie, the phone rings with David Kelly, and he says, well, the pilot's sold, but I need a, a, a co-exec producer to be a producer-director on a series. Would you be interested? And I said, um, you know, I could pretend and sort of string this along, but I'm going to answer yes now. <laughs> I said, <laughs> I said I'm not going to, uh, you know, I'm not, I'm not going to dick around. I said, uh, absolutely. And you had never directed an episode never. of episodic TV. Before. I had never done an episode, period, yeah. So I came, and David Kelly wasn't David Kelly yet, right? No, this he was, was before not. He was Allie McBeal He and was else. on the rise. He had won Emmys for L.A. Law. I had watched a little bit of L.A. Law. I thought his work was terrific. I could tell he was the next up-and-coming talented writer, you know, um, producer. But once I read the script of Picket Fences, I felt like, you know, and I remember telling my wife at the time, um, my second wife, uh, <laughs> I'm going to do this. I said, it's going to be 13 episodes and out. I mean, the show is not going to succeed. This show is too different. It's too quirky. I knew nothing. And and who knew? The show went on to win 16 Emmys in four years. Wow. And it won Best Series for two years in a row, Best Actor and Actress. And um, we were getting on the stage accepting Emmys. In fact, David Kelly said to me for the second season when we were nominated, and he was really convinced. I mean, he was very sweet, but I, I had a feeling he somewhere knew or thought he knew that we were not going to win and that NYPD Blue was going to win. So he said, you know, if they call out and take expenses, you can accept it for the best show. And I said, really? So I prepared my little speech, and it was supposed to be NYPD Blue, and we won. We won the second year, and uh, <laughs> we were all just completely shocked. So that was an incredible ride of, of um, not knowing where any of this was going. You already had your... Depression after your first movie, and then right. you're kind of slow down after Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles 2. Right. And so I, I, guess, I guess kind of like a learning thing from your career is like you kind of had these like various runs and stages. And um, I mean, you never, the, 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 there was never a point where you like gave up directing and said, uh, I'm going to go, no. you know, be work in development at a studio. No, I never gave up. I will say that I, I, I have a survival instinct. Um, it was real highs and real lows. Um, you know, in terms of someone from outside, I've had a, a, an incredible career. Um, from the inside, you know, I never made that $100 million personal movie that, you know, put me on the, uh, the zeitgeist of the culture. But that, that's, that's, that's in the dreamland. I'm, I'm, I'm now 68. I've got another good 15 years of directing or 20, depending on how far I go. And uh, I have some very specific um, 
you know, goals and dreams of going back and making probably really personal, small movies for anywhere from 200,000 to 2 million and just make my own work and try to raise the money to do independent small movies and, and, uh, theater. And yeah, well, you know, what, what's so fascinating about that, Michael, is that I'm sure all of our listeners are connecting with you right now because everyone's got some sort of, you know, day job, whether it's directing commercials or, you know, stuff that's not their, their passion project basically, or literally a day job, day job, you know, they they could be an accountant somewhere. And it's so fascinating to look at your IMDb to see how many highs and lows and different chapters of your career, you know, you've got, uh, you know, three or four lifetimes worth of work under your belt. Right. Mm Mm-hmm. And to hear you say, oh, you know, what I really want to do is my personal $200 million or $200,000 movie. Right. Like that, we're all, like every listener is like shouting at their car radio right now saying, me too, me too. And I know. it's so incredible to think that. Um, well, you know what's happened. That's always where we are, yeah. you know. You know it's, it is where we are because what's happened is it's really become an art form, purely an art form. It's like what happened, it's like what happened to the photograph where it was no longer in the hands of um, Matthew Brady and another, you know, five or six brilliant photographers and cameras could be had in, in digital form to anybody. And now many people, you know, the cream will rise to the top and everyone can take photographs and work on their, in their uh, light room and, and, and make prints and do incredible stuff. And now um, we've taken the cameras out of the studios that used to be, you couldn't shoot a 35 millimeter film. Now it doesn't exist. You can do 4K on your iPhone. I mean, it's incredible. And, uh, you know, I did that, by the way, very early, 10 year, 12 years ago, I did a $200,000 indie movie called Frankie and Johnny Are Married about an experience that I had had directing a play with my wife. And I then wrote a script about the experience. And I starred in the movie, wrote it and directed it. And we got great reactions, great response, and great reviews. It was distributed. It was actually played in a couple of theaters, and it, it, it went. It's on Amazon, and um, it's available on Amazon. Yeah, and watching that for two ninety nine. Yep, two ninety nine. Yeah, I think I see. <laughs> I think I see a penny. But you know, but you know, um, I'll. I want to do it again. I think that um, the television world is, and I was saying it to this young woman today. I said, "This is like." This is a school. This is an education. This is going to the gym, and it's making a living, so that you can continue with, you know, the, the real work that that means something to you personally. This is um, a different kind of work, and I will say that I've done work that I'm very, very proud of in television. I have no, um, or you know, um, shame about it at all. But yeah, I, you won an Emmy for best TV show. <laughs> right, right, and I don't want to keep doing episodes the rest of my life yeah i don't know it's i guess just to play devil's advocate here a little bit i mean you talk about the highs and lows but based on your imdb which i'm sure is just a tiny fraction of the work you've actually done doesn't include the scripts you've written the meetings you've had the shows the pilots you shot that didn't get picked up like since 1976 the only year you don't have a credit is 1981 right yeah um so you've pretty much been just like working <laughs> nonstop. And I, I guess I'm, I, I'm, I have never really directed episodic TV. Oh. I've done a, an indie feature. I did a TV movie, wow. like movie of the week. And I did a, you know, I've done a bunch of commercials and, and other things. And I find it myself hard to be like, I can't go back and make a $200,000 movie. That's like a, a giant step back but then you see someone like you who's won the emmy directed 50 episodes of tv at this point and then still goes and writes and directs and stars in a two hundred thousand dollar movie like what is what's your secret for that motivation well i guess is um, is my question okay the what i have been able to let go of or trying to let go of i don't think i've succeeded completely and because you're in the same time that you're working in an art form, you've got another eye on distribution, exposure, reaching an audience, being acknowledged, 
being successful and becoming a star. Okay, let's face it. You know, you're always sitting there secretly, privately going, maybe this movie's going to go out and it's like everyone's going to talk about it and see it and it's going to make, you know, $50 million and I made it for $4 million and, and it'll be, you know, I'll, I'll my door will be bang, they'll be banging down my door and I'll be the, I'll, I'll get nominated for an Oscar. And, you know, who doesn't have those fantasies? Come on. But the key is to learn to, and I am still learning to at the age of 68, to control those fantasies and not let them uh, control you. So that if I look at the landscape and I go, look, the thing that is most intriguing to me that is most challenging and rewarding is the personal statement, the thing that I want to say, that I want to write and I want to direct and tell a dramatic or a humorous story. And hopefully people will discover it. I just finished directing a play in 99-seat theater in Los Angeles. And we have gotten incredible reviews, and there have been articles written about the play. It's all about the blacklist, and that's another whole subject. And maybe as I'm talking, it does relate to what we're talking about, because my father was blacklisted in the whole um, 50s McCarthy period, the Red Scare. He was a screenwriter? He was a, No, he was an actor and became a director. He was also a director in the theater and an acting teacher and was directing in the original live television before the heyday, which it was in the 50s. He was in 1947 directing um, one-hour and half-hour dramas that were not even recorded because they were live. I mean, they've never been videotaped. I found a couple of kinescopes of his work, but it basically has gone and, and disappeared. And specifically, because it's really an interesting story, he was an original member of the Actors Studio, which was formed in the 1947. And the Actors, wow, Actors Studio started a live half-hour TV series. And uh, my father directed the second episode, and he proceeded to become the director of that series, rotating with Martin Ritt and Daniel Mann and these were colleagues of his, and they each did an episode, rotated three directors, and he, his career rose, and in 1952, he was blacklisted because he was a card-carrying member of the Communist Party in the 1930s, and he was a very political person and uh, believed in things as shocking as uh, voting rights for black people and um, social security and unions and uh, you'd call him a, a, a centrist, a Democrat today, but you know it was the it was right at the time of the Depression and uh, social socialized, uh, you know, the WPA and so many things that Roosevelt did that you know started bringing the country back on its feet. So that's where the the Communist Party and the lefties and the whole artistic scene went, especially in New York. Anyway, he didn't work for 15 years in television. And, and went back to teaching, and in his 60s, started working again. And by the time he was 70, he got a soap opera that was had, there was no work in New York, and he had known live cameras. And my father worked to the age of 85, and he was had such a spirit about him that he bounced back in such a way that I think it was a great role model for me to see, you know, to be the, the gratitude and not the, the bitterness. Yeah, you know, wow. I mean, I got, I got, uh, I'm a very lucky guy, and I've worked really hard, and I've studied, and I keep learning. And, you know, this play, which is called Think, and it's about people who named names and people who didn't, and the play is going to run to the end of December, and there'll be, maybe it'll be seen by three or four thousand people. Where, where is it playing? Uh, at, at, what in, at the Electric Lodge Theater in Venice, California. Uh, with the Rogue Machine Theater Company, and you just go online, you type in Finks or Rogue Machine, which is the name of the theater company, and it'll lead you to the Electric Lodge, which is 1416 Venice, 1416 Electric Avenue in Venice, 90291. And um, it plays on weekends, and uh, we're getting great response, and it's been a totally thrilling, exhilarating experience. That's awesome. I've kind of fantasized about directing live theater. My mom is actually a 
theater director and producer. What's your name? She does she does like community theaters oh. in um, community theater in Pasadena wow. area. And I was like, I wonder if I should try directing one of her plays because there is I've never done I've never directed like a play, but it seems like you get to really focus on you know the, the, on the blocking, blocking and the performances. Block, yeah. I mean, I don't know. I mean, there's no camera. Right? And there's no yeah. camera. If you, are you guys in LA? You are, huh? Yes. yes. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I've been getting incredible reactions from the play and it's really, it was, it was an exhilarating experience. It'd be interesting. And my answer to your subtle question is absolutely direct a play and fall on your face if you do, because the stakes are low. And I actually thought, well, maybe this will work. Maybe it won't work. You know, and turned out it did. But you never know. You never know. Michael, I, I think that's really interesting advice. Let me ask, how would someone go about um, doing that, <laughs> basically? Because, like, you know, Los Angeles is kind of like a... It's competitive. A, it's, a, it's a competitive, but it's still a robust theater town, actually. There's more theater going on than people realize. Totally. It's just that people aren't talking about right. it. How did, you, how did you get involved uh, with uh, things uh, in Well, the uh, you know what? I, I, through different circumstances, this particular one, my wife, Maya Danzinger, great, great, wonderful woman who um, has, was an actress when she was young, and now she's a writer um, and teaches writing. Uh, was an original member of this theater company. And so oh, she introduced cool. me to them and I presented the play. But here's the bottom line. First of all, anybody who's interested in the theater, I think has to take an acting class. I've taken acting classes at the high point of my career after Dr. Detroit. I studied for two years with a famous acting teacher named Bobby Lewis from, who was from the group theater in the 30s. And he was in LA teaching and I saw an ad and I picked up, the, uh, called his number, and I was interviewed, and I took his class. Um, and I acted in scenes. And then when I was in New York five years ago, I was a, it was a, a six-month, I didn't have anything to do, and I took a class from William Esper, who was another great acting teacher in New York. And what was really wild was I was in this class, and I was acting in scenes, and I got a phone call. I, an actor, a director fell out an episode of Justified, which is a great series, absolutely great series. And I was like, oh, my God. And they said, are you free in two weeks to come out and direct an episode of Justified, season five? And I jumped at it, and I found out when I told the people at Esper that I was leaving the class, I said, uh, they said, Justified, Tim, Tim, Timothy Oliphant's a, a, a student, a student of Bill. So I go out there, and, you know, he doesn't know me from Adam, and he's the star of the show, and he's also the producer, and he's basically a very very um not only he's not tough he's he's a sweetheart but he's he's the main guy and i went on the set and i said i'm and they weren't hiring new directors they had that basically they couldn't find anybody so i was the last choice <laughs> so he didn't know me and i go up to uh, tim and i go by the way uh i you know i'm here i'll be doing the next episode he goes oh great i said uh i have regards to you from bill esper i just finished taking his class and he melted bill you took Bill's class? I said, yeah, I was acting for six. Are you kidding? He was like, and then he, he became a different person. And we sure. had yeah. the greatest time doing this episode. And then I came back for the penultimate episode the next season, and I saw him in a play. And it was like, you know, the relationship, and I'm going to divert digress to one other point. If there's anything that's more important than there's nothing more important than the relationship between the actor and the director, whether it's a play or a television episode or your own movie, it's your relationships with the actors. That's the single most important thing. And, you know, relationships how with do the camera, you, you know, so what, what's your strategy to, especially when you're doing TV and you are probably not getting a lot of time with these actors ahead of time and also mm -hmm. it's more their show than your show how do you quickly like form a bond or like get them to trust you what what are kind of some of the well, what's your method method well i i first assume depending on how long the show has been on them we can talk about marishka hargate who i've been working with for the last several years and whom i love to death she's now in her 20th year she knows her character 
<laughs> I'm not going to tell her about her character, but right. she is open to direction. So when I say we had a moment, we had a moment that, that was one of my favorite moments. She had a big scene, three minute scene where she was very emotional and it was all about a, uh, she was on trial for some event where someone accused her of abusing her own child. And she was enraged and upset and she was emotional and she did this take and she finished and she said, that was great. And she looked at me and I said, well, and she said, oh, oh, oh give me a break. You're not going to ask me to do it again, are you? And I went, yeah. She said, what the fuck? What, what do you want? And I said, you didn't come here to play this scene. And she stopped and went, I get it. Okay, because she had just like she had, now she was so spent when she did it again. It was so genuine and so real that afterwards she just literally hugged me and said, "Thank you, thank you." So, right, and, she gave it her all, but it felt like she was giving it her correct, all. Correct, correct. Uh, um, so, what is the yeah. what's the key? And here's the key. And this is sort of after twenty years of studying acting and doing the job. You as the director are the truth barometer you're the one who has to watch and go i believe it i get it or guess what there's a little too much acting here or there's not enough here or what is what's the subject what are the stakes you're not working on character in episodes and when you're doing a movie you are and that's another whole story but when you're coming in as a guest director you're you're um guiding the performance and actors love to be directed the right way they don't, they don't want right. to be told, you move here, you move there, make it louder, make it softer, unless some of them do. I mean, Raul Esparza, whom I love too, working on Ball Nights for You, was always like, before I'd open my mouth, he'd say, it was terrible, right? And I'd say, <laughs> no, but let's do it again. He said, I know, I, I, I was shit. Okay, watch, I'll do it again. And that was his language. And, right. you know, and then, and you know, I'll never forget my first day on an episode of um, Alpha House, John, John yeah. Goodman's doing a, a monologue to a Senate hearing, and it's the first thing up in the morning. And he does it, and he's fine. And he doesn't know me from Adam, but I go up to him, and I said, let's just do it one more. He said, what do you want? I said, just a little slower. And he went, no one's told me ever to go slower. I said, well, yeah, just go a little slower. And he did, and he said, yep, better, thank you. And that was it, <laughs> you know. But um, so you gain trust in the subtlest of ways, and that's the process. How do I gain the trust? You got to be brave. You got to be honest. You can also not say anything. You know, if it doesn't, you know, you don't, you don't jump into the deep water. Get your toes wet. But um, know who your actors are, and find out that know know that they all like to get feedback, positive feedback. Right. Well, let me ask you a question that might seem kind of dumb. Okay, no, <laughs> but, none of these uh, questions are dumb. A, yeah. About performance, directing performance. Just wait, Michael. <laughs> okay, all right, let me hear it. Because <laughs> obviously you have so much experience working with so many actors, but like when you say something uh, to the effect of that you're the truth barometer, that you see, oh, that felt like acting, and I want it to not feel like acting. I mean, that's like every other performance, every other set I'm on, I have that problem. Like... I don't believe it. You know, I yeah. feel like you're saying the words in the script, but do you arm yourself with here's like things I can say yes. to like go slower or you didn't come here for, for this speech. Like, yes. is that just something that is coming out of your instinct? Cause you've done it so much or do you have like a list of words that you know work well and are actionable? I don't have a list of words. I have found it through trial and error. I have, you cannot ask yourself to be the kind of director you are on your first or your second experience that you will be on your 15th experience. It just takes time. But I have sat there and been very frustrated and been unable to change a performance. It happens. I have to back up and, and say, if you're talking about your own movie, there's one thing that's singly the most important thing about directing, and that is casting. I will never forget, I met Martin Ritt, famous director, who was a colleague of my father's, and I met him when I was at 
film school, and I asked him about directing, and he said, cast well, you'll direct well. In essence, when you cast, you've got to believe the actor in the audition. And or if you're casting off of film or whatever, you really got to see this person can do this role. It, life will be so much easier. But if you're casting somebody who isn't right, that's a very tough problem already. You've given yourself an obstacle. It's all in the casting. It's all in the casting. That's for starters. Then the next thing is to help the actor listen to the other actor in the scene. Always very important where you start to feel like, well, they're not really listening, but hear what they have to say. And if they really need the help, it's kind of like, you know, don't, you know, um, don't uh, take your time. Take your time. Uh, let's not worry about pace right now. These are things I will say. I'll also ask people to read it with as little emotion as possible first time around to get a feel for it. And then we'll start to block it. And I'll say, if it's sitting there and I feel like there's, I need movement, I might go, how, how do you feel about getting up and going over to, to the window? And the person goes, why? And I say, well, look, this person just said this so upsetting. I don't want to look at this person. I give a reason. I will never say, well, I need it for the camera. I will never go, you know, please do it for my... Uh, oh, that's fun. You know, Even yeah. though you do need it for the camera Correct. sometimes. When you, re <laughs> when you really get to know the actors and look, you're on a series and it's very experienced. There have been times when I'm going, you know, if you guys want to get out of here in an hour and I do this in one shot, how about you moving over there? And they go, yes, we'll do it. Boom. What do you wear? Sure, you know, right. We'll make it work, you know, and if we can, we do. So everyone right. can Well, if you've it. been on a show for 20 years, yeah. you kind of, yeah. it's okay for, for a director to say, well, we need this for the camera. Yeah. Right. I yeah. think. What the I guess the more t uh, time an actor logs on a show over you know, day in and day out, the more camera savvy they become, right? Like yes, they. Yes. I, I mean, oftentimes I mean, they're directing a lot of episodes themselves, even. Right. You know? But but let me tell you, and 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 you know, um, the, Johnny Lee Miller on Elementary is very difficult to direct and stage. But I'll tell you why, and I have empathy for him. And I figured it out very early and realized I, I really can't talk to him and stage him. It's frustrating. But they hand him of an eight-page day or a seven-page day, six pages. It's his dialogue. And he has spent the whole night and the early morning learning every word so he can come in and speak like Sherlock Holmes, you know, going a mile a minute. And he can't focus on anything else than getting those damn words out and and acting when he, you know, asked him to start moving and get a coffee cup and blah, blah, blah. like, no, I'm going to stand right here and I'm going to stay. And he figured out a way to get through the day. And I get it. I get it. I have empathy for it. It's frustrating as a director. I will tell you, you know, you're not going to get an opportunity to direct him and right. you can't take it personally. I think it's fascinating to think about how each show, and you've done so many of them, but each show has its own set of quirks and challenges and like pressures that they put on the performers, whether that's page count or a ton of dialogue or action or, you know, jargon, right? Like there's a lot of, you know, procedurals are filled with like jargon, right? Yep. Like you're doing doctor jargon, you're doing like forensic jargon, yeah. all of that stuff, yep, right? Yep, yep. So, so let me ask, Michael, before before we wrap it up, just kind of going to the basics of you know you were talking about casting what are the other things that you do before you land on set what's your prep like um very interesting now in any way i mean film episode try to give the general I, I you know i i think actually more specifically i'm i'm curious about the way that you prep uh an episode of TV, maybe even specifically the stuff that leans more procedural, right. you know, because there's so much of a regimented style to that. And Oren, hop in, help me out. Yeah, I, I mean, you, I'm I I watch the... a lot of Law and Order. My wife has a an improv team that does an improvised episode of Law and Order <laughs> uh, once a month at yeah. UC the UCB Theater. Um, I'd love to see. It. And you know, they've oh, Michael, of, you should come. Okay, that yeah. would be great. Yeah. They've nailed the format. Unfortunately, they only do the law part, but they're, they want to, it's like a 20 minute set of the law. It's a comedy, but right? They're they hoping comedy, to, right? Or is it or serious? Yeah, it's 100% improvised. Okay. Like the audience gives the name of the episode and then they always open up with a, somebody is at work, they find a dead body, 
then uh, they find some clues at that body that lead them to like four different locations. They go to each location, interview the people there. Then there's an autopsy scene, which kind of gives away who, which of the people at the locations did it, and then they catch them. Uh, it sounds um, hysterical. I, I'll be in L.A. in February. Unfortunately, I won't be back until then, but you'll send me the information so I can, I can go. It sounds like fun. For sure. Yeah. But even if even the improv version of Law and Order is so regimented, um, like, you know, we all know Law and Order is kind of these ripped from the headlines right. stories. I know you you did an episode about children being separated from their yes. parents yes. Yes. Uh, recently. Yes. Uh, like how. Yeah. What what are just the steps? You know, you could just take yeah. us through the, yeah. the days before you get to set. Okay. Well, I always when I read the script. The very first time I get a script, I read it uh, without interruption, quietly, as a viewer. I consciously read it as a viewer watching the episode. I do not think about my directing. I do not think about the acting. You don't make any notes or anything? No, no. I read it to capture the emotional line of where the story is and where my head is. And then I'll read it again and still take no notes, but start to absorb the inner life of the script and what it's about. You know, that particular episode you're talking about was clear. It was a morality tale. And the anguish and the pain that everyone felt in relation to the separating of this little girl from from her mother and how they all became invested in, in bringing them back together. That's at the heart of it. And... I have to digress and say for one thing, I had an experience once when I was um, 25 directing a sequel to The Bad News Bears. I lost my script with all my notes in it, in prep. (laughs) And then I found it. Yeah. How soon before the shoot? It was about three weeks before the shoot, and the script had been left at a location, and I freaked out. And we went back to that location, (laughs) and I found the script. And after that, I went, I am never taking notes on a piece of paper that if I lose a piece of paper, I don't know what I'm doing. I memorize all my notes. I learn my lines. I look at the script. I look at the scenes. I think about it. I think about it. I become very absorbed. I become like an actor. I learn the story. I, 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 that's what I do. I become very um, totally into the material, to the way in which I learn the backstories and I learn the circumstances, and I become as knowledgeable about the story as a writer, maybe even more so, in the sense that I ask questions that they never even considered. And I show up for the very first meeting with a real understanding and then with some very fundamental questions about things that either don't make sense or maybe I can help make sense in the script, in the directing. Uh, that's where I begin. Now, there's a whole procedure that's pretty standard on most shows, which is there's a casting session, there's scouting locations, meetings with props and set dressing and wardrobe and all this stuff. But, and those, I keep going back to understanding what the script is, you know, and, and understanding where the characters are. So I work very internally and organically. Uh, I don't make a shot list. I don't. Um, I, yeah, man. Yep. I do know Wait, for TV you don't make a shot no, list? No. I do know I do know pretty roughly how I'm gonna stage something and I work out shots in my head and I'll go to the location and I'll figure out where people move. But it could change on a dime. You know, also an actor has an idea and um you know, it's completely different and I'll I'll think it's you know, if it's if it, if it's working, I'll go with it. And I'll let it take me wherever it takes me. But I know what the story is, and I know what, the, what needs to be told. So if the if what the actor's doing has nothing to do with the story, I'll stop them. I, I love that so much. And, and, you know, Michael, I have kind of a mixed opinion of shot lists myself. Sometimes yeah. I like to to kind of do your method, and some other times I think I get a little more uh, um, complete, technical. Complete I think. shot list for Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. To the point where it was storyboarded every shot, because I had so many issues. I had uh, puppets, I had right. creatures, I had stunts, I had, you know, where's the camera going to be in relation to where the puppeteers are going to be, and you know, sure. that's what yeah. you have to do. Yeah. But um, um, let let me ask though, though on um, 
on your current projects, how does your crew feel about you not shot listing? How does the AD, does the AD just kind of go by page count? Like how does your DP interact? Like how, what is that conversation? Like um, I have to say that when I, when I first start on a new show, I know that I can honestly say, even though I have a reputation and they, you know, they, I, they know I work quickly and I come in on time and I, and I actually age quickly, no one really knows until they work with me. So I've always seen and sort of laughed the idea that I can tell people are very anxious before I begin because uh, they've asked me, you know, so what's your shock? And I go, well, I don't know yet. And it's like, hmm. I'll say, but if you really want to know, we can, and then if, if I get like the producer kind of the panic look, I'll say, well, we'll start over here. And I think when the person walks in, I'll move over there and da 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 You know, to ease them, not for me, to ease people. Because when all of a sudden I'm staging it and looking over the camera, and it might change completely. Um, but I really have worked it out in my head. You know, um, Mariska Hargitay makes a big joke about, you know, she, she says to me when she's directing, and she's done now about five episodes, is that she's, she's loved to come in and, as she says, do a pressman. I did a pressman because she, you know, staged it and came up with the ideas of how to shoot it right on the spot and it came out quickly and all of a sudden people were moving and it had a flow and she saw it and found it and, you know, trusted, trusted that she could fly. And that's what I like to do. It's kind of like flying. It's, it, it, it is skydiving without a net. And uh, it's scary at first, but once you start to do it and succeed and start to realize you know, um, how terrific your work can be, it's exhilarating. And, and I'll close with this story, and this is where this comes from. I was doing Boulevard Night, which was a movie by the East Los Angeles Chicano Gangs, and the cameraman was John Bailey, brilliant cameraman who has done, you know, 30, 40 wonderful movies. And we, he and I, I was 27, he was a couple years older, with his first film in the feature, my third feature, and um, we worked out every shot. We didn't storyboard, but we talked through the script and worked out every shot. And we got to a location, and it was a funeral, and it was a two-page scene after the funeral when the gang members are getting into their cars, and there's several moments. And the production manager came and said, we're, we're being kicked out of the uh, parking lot and the, and the cemetery. We've lost the permit, and they're kicking us out, and you've got 45 minutes. And I went, what? And I turned to John and said, what do we do? And he went, well, I'll lay 40 feet of track. You stage the track. I'll get the camera on the dolly. You place the cars. Let's see if we can get it. We killed ourselves in a half hour, pulled it all together. I said to the second, uh, the AD, work the background. I'll work with the principals. We were like wildfire. We got it. The next day in the screening room, that's how we used to look at dailies. I'm watching the footage and I go, why is this the best shot of the movie? I, I, I didn't even know what we were doing. Why is this so sort of improvisational and thrilling. And it was all of a sudden, it was a clue. And it was like, it was the light bulb that went off for me that whenever I really allowed the, the, the opportunity to play and improvise and create, it would show up on the screen. And I will also close with this line. If you're making a movie, you're working in oils and you're painting in the foreground, the background, when you're doing a television movie or a pilot, it's a watercolor. But when you're doing a television episode, it's a pencil drawing. And there is an art to a pencil drawing. And you've got to work fast. You've got to work intuitively. And you've got to make time your friend, not your enemy. Because if you're struggling with, I don't have enough time, I don't have enough time, flip it. I have to create within this time. And that's exciting. And that's a challenge. What fun. Sage yeah. advice, Michael. That's pretty great, yeah. man. So good. You know, go out there and do it. You can do it. You know, and just shoot it. Just shoot right? it. Just shoot it. You got it. You, it, it. It's the story of your of your podcast. That's exactly right. Well, Michael, would you stick around with us? We'd love to talk a little bit more, but we we got to get yeah. into our endorsements. All right, the endorsement. You got one because one one's been sitting in the back of my mind, and it's utterly unrelated to everything. Right. Ooh, great. Well, mine's real dumb, so okay. Michael, take it okay. away. Paid endorsements. Uh, Margaret's Lobster Rolls. Margaret's Lobster Rolls in Northport, Maine. She has a little stand off Route 1 between Camden and Belfast. 
and makes by far the best lobster rolls in Maine, if not in the whole country. Whoa, look out. She has already been yeah. written up. She's got a little stand. She just opened about three years ago. Every time I take anybody to this little stand to have a lobster roll at Margaret, it's like she won't even take the lobster from the Penobscot Bay. She she ships it from up north on the border of Canada because the lobster is tastier. And <laughs> and I'm telling you, whatever she uses a particular kind of butter, because of mayonnaise, and you've never had anything like it. And it's it's one of the reasons uh, I love Maine is Margaret's lobster roll. Wow. I've never been to Maine. Oh. And I don't eat lobster. Oh. But <laughs> All right. You got you. But it sounds amazing. Yeah, take a look uh, at pictures. I, I, go on, but more than that, Maine. Oh, I've been going to Maine for, for 30 years, and I, I sail, and I have a sailboat, and I, I love Maine. That is, that is where I That's recharge. Awesome. You, do you ever see Stephen King? No, I don't. <laughs> he's he's, he's well, Bangor, Maine. I'm more by the, the water, but I, re- oh, I love gotcha. Stephen King. I'd love to well, meet him. He, and if he ever listens to yeah. this, you know, I would bet he's going to drive on down to try out Margaret's lobster roll. And if he, you, you know, he, <laughs> we have gotten a lot of interesting questions from Stephen K from Maine. So, <laughs> well, I'm telling you, reach out to him. And just say we just got an endorsement for Margaret's lobster. Have you heard of him? Yeah. He, I don't think he does, but he'll go down and try him, and he won't be disappointed. Sounds like it. Margaret's lobster roll yeah. sounds great, man. Right. Um, Orin, you got anything? Um, I'll let you go first. Okay. Well, mine, like I said, mine's real dumb. Um, so have you, have either of you two seen Game Night or Widows? Oh, yes. I, I want Widows. to see Widows. I have not seen Widows. So this, I have not seen Game Night. What's, what's it? It is a, it's a backdoor, um, endorsement of both Game Night and, uh, Widows. And I think actually maybe one other movie that I haven't seen, I think Insidious, but the little white dog in Widows and Game Night, its real name is Olivia. It's a Westie. Is incredible. Really? It's the cutest dog in the world. <laughs> and both of those movies are pretty great. Uh, Widows, I really love. Widows is like maybe my favorite movie. Of the oh, year. And wow. Game Night is very That's good. The one I want to see. I'll go see it this weekend. Or oh, oh man, yeah. so good. Every every choice in uh, in Widows, is, I think, is really awesome. The directing is impeccable. Yeah, right. The cast is awesome. Like er- I loved everything about it especially that little white dog. Well, I, we, we, we have a little white dog of our own, and we want to figure out how to get him work, and uh, maybe this will be an inspiration. Listen, man, it is a master class. But, uh, you know, and I'm being a little tongue-in-cheek here, but I do genuinely love um, when animals are used in movies in a really organic and naturalistic sort of yeah. way. So, like, this dog doesn't really do a ton. It's, yeah, mostly it's not like just, the artist. Yeah, yeah, no, it's not. Yeah, exactly. Right. Talk about a hand. Yeah, I know that's um, a total hand. But but you know, um, I love it's uh, it's like there's something so human about having a, an animal in the space, and it says so much about the character. And you know, a dog can't help but improvise most of the time. You know, they're just kind of sitting around in the scene. Yeah. And if you block and shoot it right, I think it can really add an incredible additional layer to your film. I completely so, agree. I completely agree. This is great. I'm looking forward to it. I know there's more in this movie than just the dog, so I know I'm... Uh, <laughs> well, I won't spoil okay. anything else. All right. Uh, but there is a dog in the okay. movie. <laughs> so that, that... Well, did you... Did we already talk about Homecoming? Speaking of kind of impeccable choices. Oh, I don't think so, actually. Homecoming. No. Well, Homecoming, it's on Amazon. It's based on a podcast. So Homecoming is a TV show, and I think it might be a miniseries. Yeah, it is. Uh, it and stars Julia Roberts. Oh, yeah, sure. Has it started to air? Directed by... Yeah, it's on... It, it's You can watch every episode on Amazon Prime. Okay. Directed by Sam Esmail of Mr. Robot. Wow, uh, he's amazing. Like, the best set you've ever seen, because it doesn't feel like a set. <laughs> and it, it, But the camera is doing all these totally impossible things that... I think in the hands of maybe someone else you'd think are like overly flashy or distracting, but here they just like create this tone and a mood that just really loved. And the story is so interesting and it's definitely the first TV show I've seen that's been adapted from pretty much a radio play, AKA a a podcast. I really love that. That's one of my endorsements. 
the other thing is this thing I just realized today, which is like totally geeky and has nothing to do with anything we've talked about. <laughs> okay. But on, on Chrome, yeah. which Michael just installed today, yeah. just for us, Google Chrome, if you, if you go to the menus and go to um, more tools, so there's these like three vertical dots at the top right of your screen. Mm -hmm. uh, if you click on that and you go to more tools, there's, you can go to developer tools mode. And when you're in that mode, there's this icon that lets you view whatever web page you're on as if you're looking at it on an iPhone or an iPad. You can choose any device you want. Wow. So this lets you kind of do a lot of interesting things. First of all, if you're trying to, if you're writing a pitch or a treatment or trying to show like Photoshop a phone screen into someone's hand, you could actually like do it on your computer and get that phone screen out of Chrome. Wow. There's some apps like Instagram mm -hmm. that you can only upload photos to Instagram from your phone. But if you use Google Chrome and your desktop and you use this developer tools and tell your browser to tell Instagram.com that you're accessing it through a phone, it'll let you do all the things that you can do on your phone, but from your computer. So you can start dragging images that you've edited and doing all these things um, that I've always taken so many extra steps. Well, awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming and talking to us and your wealth of knowledge. I hope, you know, we can have you back in the future because i feel like we just kind of scratched the surface yeah me too me too i mean i'm glad we finally did this and i, I would definitely do it again okay well if people want to find out about uh, your play finks f-i-n-k-s yes, uh, it's playing at the in venice yep yep venice california and just type in finks uh and we'll send you to either the rose machine theater company or just the electric lodge or you type in LA Times, thinks it'll bring up some of the articles and the interviews and all that stuff. Awesome. All right. Um, well, cool. Well, if you uh, guys want to write any questions for us, comments, uh, anything you uh, want to tell us, you can email us at justshootitpod at gmail.com. You can also find us on all social media, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, or at justshootitpod. Uh, I'm on Twitter as at smiteypyleg. And I'm at Mr. Matt Enlow. This episode was edited by Christopher Robert Gray. Our producer is Madeline Rosewatt. And our webmaster is Ewan Williams. The music you're listening to right now is by the Free Music Archive and the Artist Jazar. Thanks so much, everyone. Bye. Bye.